welcome to the Canadian Nutrition Society podcast, Nutrition Conversations, a podcast dedicated to exploring the latest research in nutrition and health in Canada. In each episode, we invite expert guests to share their insight and knowledge on a wide range of topics from dietary patterns to sports nutrition, food insecurity, and food sustainability. Whether you're looking to improve your own health and wellness or simply stay up to date on the latest developments in the field of nutrition, we hope you'll join us on this journey to better understand the role food plays in our lives. Please note that the views expressed by speakers in CNS podcasts are those of the speaker and not necessarily of CNS. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Dairy Farmers of Canada. Sitting in the host chair in this episode is Dr. James House, professor at the University of Manitoba, who will be speaking to Dr. Harvey Anderson on the role of the food matrix and meal combinations in metabolic health and appetite control. When it comes to maintaining healthy body weight, satiety is an important factor. With respect to the regulation of satiety, it is important to reflect on how the type of foods that we consume and the way in which we consume these foods influences appetite. As part of this discussion, there's also a need to reflect on ways in which we can improve the nutritional quality of processed foods, including plant-based substitutes for dairy and other animal products. It is important for nutritionists and consumers to understand that caution is needed when selecting plant-based alternatives as it pertains to metabolic control and satiety, and that regulations and labeling may be required around these products moving forward. To guide us through some of these issues, we have the pleasure of engaging with Dr. Harvey Anderson, Dr. Anderson is a professor of nutritional sciences and physiology in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. He is director of the NSERC University Industry Program in Food Safety, Nutrition and Regulatory Affairs and past director of the Child Centre for Nutrition, Health and Development. His research, supported by peer-reviewed grants since 1970, has elucidated mechanisms explaining the effects of food and components on metabolism, food intake, obesity and diabetes, and nutritional support in clinical settings, as well as maternal programming of chronic disease. And this has led to over 400 publications and the training of more than 100 graduate students, postdoctoral fellows, and research associates. Notably, he is also the recent recipient of the 2022 Living Legend Award, awarded by the International Union of Nutritional Sciences. And so with that, I'd like to welcome Harvey to, uh, uh, to the second episode of Nutrition Conversations. Well, thank you, Jim. Happy to be here. Great. Well, why don't we get started by, let me just ask you a, a very top level question. What do we mean by satiety? What is the definition of satiety? Well, tongue in cheek, I say being sated. That doesn't help you much, does it? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> say, you know, you can say that satiety is simply the absence of hunger. But of course, satiety can refer to an awful lot of things. And uh, what we do is, you know, it can be measured by having people report subjectively uh, on what we call visual analog scales. So just simply how hungry do you feel? So that it's important. Uh, I agree with you. Satiety is kind of an awkward word. And when you write manuscripts with it, uh, people get all confused as to whether you're talking about hunger or you're talking about satiety. What does it really mean? So that's a very good question. Uh, there's So you, you can measure it. Like if, if we just flip over to the hunger side, 
if I ask you, uh, you know, after a hard day's work, uh, do you feel full? And you'll say no. Do you feel hunger? You'll feel say yes, because you really do have a feeling of hunger. You know, you know what it feels like. And then when you measure with these scales, you have a hundred millimeter, a centimeter, a hundred millimeter line, and you can skip, go along that scale. You know, I'm so hungry I could eat a whale or I'm not hungry at all. But the converse of that is when, if you do eat the whale, then what happens? Well, you feel full and therefore you're sated or you, you have satiety and, uh, you can measure it, like you say, with these visual analog scales, but a good way to measure satiety is also, uh, you know, how much did you eat after you, let's say you consume uh, 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 any food, we just say any food, let's just say beans, pulses. <laughs> so you eat a serving of pulses, you like pulses, uh, and just a serving. And then, uh, you measure satiety with these scales I'm talking about. And then the best way to find out whether you really were sated is to feed them a meal and then measure how much comes in the meal. And that's a, so you can get a quantitative uh, measure. And just for example, with uh, proteins, if you take it 15 minutes before or, or five, 10 minutes before a meal, you kickstart insulin release from the pancreas. That's called the first phase. And therefore, you know, if you have something, a little snack like that before you start to eat, you're also already partially sated. So when you talk about, you know, combining foods and eating a time and uh, all that sort of thing, uh, you're really trying to get down the, stop the hunger urge and uh, you know maybe not eat so much and th that's where we fall apart because there's a lot more to eating than uh, simply the biological response to calories and the food composition we talked about how we measure it so you use the visual analog scale as one reference but uh, you've also done experiments where as you mentioned where you've actually given a meal afterwards now i'm assuming if you gave a meal of chocolate cake versus uh, old school Brussels sprouts, uh, you might get a different response. Like what is the test product that you actually, uh, or the test meal that you would give so that you don't factor in some of those other biological uh, drivers that uh, might influence consumption? Well, if, believe it or not, we often use pizza. Oh, okay. <laughs> because all, all ages eat pizza. And I won't give the product name, uh, so I don't want to insult anybody, but you know, they, uh, they're good, but they're not that good, <laughs> you know, so you know, taste can be a factor, but we always ask people and we have them taste it before they come into the studies, do they find it pleasant or unpleasant? And if they find it unpleasant or they're not pizza, but try to find a person that's not a pizza eater these days. So it kind of makes a good uh, measure. And what we do is then uh, deliver a, a plate full of hot. And then 10 minutes later, we go in and take the plate away and give them another plate. So they get all confused as to how much they're actually eating because they can't count the squares. Uh, and that's really measures. And when they're full, they're full. And 
you know, you can really detect uh, differences, let's say, among a beverage taken maybe a half an hour earlier or even just before the meal. So it, it, you do have a reasonably quantitative measure, but it's, again, in an isolated laboratory facility, it's very different from if you're going out for dinner and you're with a group and, uh, you know, you, yeah, when you finish up eating, you're full. But somebody says, boy, that looks like a good dessert. Let's have it, you know. I think uh, one of my friends said, uh, you know, the trick is to start with the dessert. <laughs> <laughs> the point is they all influence our appetite. And, but meals are important. Well, that's a, that's, well, let's explore that a little bit more. Um, certainly when you're looking at studies that explore satiety, there are multiple uh, treatment approaches to uh, explore the role of nutrients or other specific food components. Uh, one area that you've been particularly interested in is the role of dietary protein in controlling satiety. Can you, can you maybe speak on that in terms of some of the, the work that you've done and, and where the evidence is leading us into that, into that regula regulatory step? Yeah, the, the first thing I just want to say is that the whole food, and again, I'll go back to your friends, the pulses and so on, that's the best trigger. Of course, they, they're quite high in protein, but I think we've gotten into uh, where people want that magic bullet of just, you know, go to the uh, health food store and stock up on whey protein and have it uh, before a meal or or at different times of the day after exercise. The issue is you're not getting the benefit of uh, the protein when it's combined in a food matrix and with uh, calories. You know, it, it, there's, uh, regulation of appetite is very complex. So I think, uh, yes, the, the, the um, I'll get back to your question. I mean, is protein important? Well, on the scale of things, if you isolate protein, fat, and carbohydrate, which you'd agree are the three principal items in any food, uh, protein has the highest immediate response in terms of satiety. Uh, carbohydrate next, again, depends on whether it's a high release of glucose or slow release. And then fat kind of sits there and works its way in and keeps you full a bit longer. And we often, that's actually fat is overlooked in that capacity these days and need to get back to thinking about. It. But yes, there's a hierarchy uh, in terms of composition. And, you know, there's some who I'll take, uh, you know, that gets reductionist and maybe it's just calcium. Well, that, you know, it's got to be in the food and it's got to be in a matrix. And that's why I really feel uh, passionate about trying to tell people when you sit down, eat a meal, have, you know, protein and carbohydrate, but whole food sources, not just, you know, the reductionist foods and the highly processed stuff. And uh, take time to, even if you have to buy some of these frozen foods, they're still better off, you know, the, the meal mixtures than just saying, okay, I'm just going to have some. Uh, carbohydrate on its own rather than within a meal. So it's that meal combination. You know, I don't care what kind of protein beverage you have with breakfast, but if you have it with breakfast, 
it knocks the heck out of the glycemic response from the carbohydrate. So in that sense, there's no bad inf bad breakfast cereal, you know, despite what people kind of think. You're better off with a combination. It's quick, get out of the house and get to work, you know, instead of buying a donut on the way. So you're a, you're a proponent of looking at the matrix as opposed to sort of the, the, the more reductionist approach of, of looking at the specific nutrients. And so I think, it, I, I think we, uh, as, as researchers in that area, look at the reductionist approach because it helps us to elucidate mechanisms probably a little bit uh, more easily. So, but um, when you're looking at the matrix, obviously it can have a significant effect, as you mentioned. It's, so what are some factors that we need to think about and beyond sort of just the, the macronutrients in terms of the way in which the matrix is presented? Well, there's matrix and there's serving size. You know, the Health Canada has declared serving sizes and that's what you see on the packages. Uh, and you know glass of milk yogurt size and so on so uh you're right i mean we we are reductionists and they say well if you're going to compare a plant-based product with a animal-based product you should you, you use equal amounts of protein but the reality is when you go to the marketplace and you buy a glass of milk and you buy let's say an almond beverage as a substitute You've got one with maybe a gram of protein, another with 3.5, you know, per 100 mils. So that's a complication. The, all of the uh, plant substitutes are horribly highly processed, low in protein. There's even a cheese out there. They call it cheese, a vegan cheese. It doesn't have any protein in it. So the, the concept of what the original food was, the whole food, is completely lost and i you know i confess a conflict and i'm funded by dairy but if you look at the uh the properties of milk you've got a matrix of fat protein and carbohydrate that you know must have been created for some reason in this interesting format because uh, it's got two proteins in it, whey and casein. And when you, you drink milk, the whey starts to kick in and give, you know, affects your appetite. It regulates your postprandial blood glucose. And then it gets you kick-started. And then the casein starts to digest from the stomach. You know, the curds and the whey kind of story. And uh, it, it goes down into the gut and uh, starts stimulating hormones and releasing amino acids. So you get that nice flow of amino acids for protein synthesis. You get this kind of gut stimulation throughout the a time period. And I can tell you there's no plant substitute that can match that process uh, in the terms of the refined beverages and whatever. Of course, again, if we go back to something like pulses, they have that combination in them. So when you eat them, you get both the the fast and slow because of the fiber. So it's it's the whole food that can, and, and then what we're learning now with milk is not only that, but the fat in it has a lot of physiological metabolic properties that we don't really understand, but it's probably a gain, and a low glycemic sugar, by the way. So, you know, it, it is a an interesting complete food, but there, I'm not, you know, there, there are others, like I say, the pulses and uh, 
you know, even potatoes are uh, when eaten with a meal and, you know, you, you can eat it with any protein source, tofu or meat or whatever, eggs. Uh, the glycemic part of it is not an issue. Plus, potatoes are one of the best nutrient-balanced vegetables in the marketplace. So uh, we have to think that way rather than <laughs> go back to your point of being reductionist and just tearing it apart because you can't understand the food matrix and its benefit by just tearing everything apart. Now, those are interesting comments and reflections. And I think it's uh, it really opens up uh, opportunities for, for considering the food supply. Obviously, with, with health, guidance from Health Canada and in terms of the reflections upon the consumption of highly processed foods and um, guidance around um, the ways in which we are incorporating whole foods into our plate. And certainly if you look at the, 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 health can or the Canada's Food Guide aspirational plate, it, it, it basically focuses on whole foods. Um, but I, I don't think it's without question that there is, there is interest at least for, uh, for some of these more, more processed foods that uh, would be more plant-based. Is, is there anything that you would say to, to guide, um, say, the, the sector for, and for those consumers who are seeking? Because I know that's something that... Uh, uh, that you've that you've uh, talked about in terms of what what guidance or what regulatory steps should be taken to help uh, position quote unquote healthier uh, plant based uh, whole foods in the market or even processed foods in the marketplace. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not against going uh, toward a more plant based economy and diet, but the uh, maybe I shouldn't say the word, but I think it. The industry's a little bit been a little bit too opportunistic just to get something out there and saying it's a substitute for a, an animal product when it's highly processed. It probably doesn't have protein. It doesn't have the same nutrients you expect. Uh, and so what ultimate what it means is is the public feels good about it, but they're been been misled. And uh, you know we. We did look at the Canadian Community Health Survey to look at what's happening with people. As now, that's not individuals, you know, because it's just a 24-hour snapshot. But as they move towards plant, much higher plant protein diets, the nutrient quality greatly depreciate, you know, falls. And yes, they're getting more fiber. They're getting more uh, the, the the vitamins and that you expect from plant protein. But they're losing out on an awful lot, and especially uh, uh, certain age groups. Uh, it's very uncertain that uh, that parents really know, uh, you know, new parents that have all of a sudden decided to become vegan or strict vegetarian. Uh, the guidance that they might give children, an expectation of children, because children have tastes and appetite, and uh, I think, you know, in a way, the, the food guy got ahead of itself without thinking of the unintended consequences. And so maybe we need to make a, a better effort uh, to have people understand the benefits and the pitfalls and think that, you know, those people that in countries where there are, there are vegetarian diets and that's basically it or, or or the religious reasons and so on, they know how to eat vegetarian. You know, but a lot of Canadians don't know how to eat vegan. And man, and some of the stuff that was recorded 
they weren't even including tofu or soy protein in the top five choices. It was buns and sweets and so on. So we have to do a better job. And I think uh, for credibility, I think the food industry should be aiming to uh, improve, understand the properties of what they're trying to substitute for and creating a similar whole food, if you will. So by definition, all of those products are highly processed, full of additives, and unfortunately not much protein in some of them. So I think we can do better. Yeah, and certainly there, there are regulatory tools in place, especially in Canada, in terms around standards of identity that precludes the use of the term milk on a, on a plant-based beverage. And so, but you know, that argument is, and debate is raging supreme down in the United States right now because that's a very different approach in terms of how, how they label that. So um, that gets to the point of you know, what, is, what are some of the regulatory tools that are needed to help guide consumers um, that may be seeking um, um, to incorporate more plant-based uh, foods within their diet. But I'm really interested in, in knowing your perspective on um, on specific stages across the life cycle. Uh, you mentioned about about kids a little bit early on, and you've done a lot of work on kids in, as part of your research program. Um, but are there specific points within the life cycle that we really need to be focused in on in terms of um, satiety and regulation of appetite and, and how that sets up uh, for um, for longer-term health implications? You know, as nutritionists, we try to define a healthy diet often on the basis of the nutrient quality, nutrient intake, and whether it meets the requirements. Now, to be fair, Health Canada got away from that and said we got to tar- target chronic disease, and that's why we have the current food guide, which kind of downplays the focus on nutrients. There, there are certain age groups. I mean, I mentioned the children, and there's some evidence that was conducted here at the University of Toronto that suggests that the the children that were consuming substitutes for milk were a, a bit shorter and a bit fatter, and it depends on the age group. And the initial paper, they've kind of changed gears on it a little bit. But I think it points to the fact that we really don't know what's happening to children uh, on, as the parents accept uh, more vegetarian and more plant-based diets. So, you know, is it meeting requirements? I really don't know. That should be an area of research for children. But then, you know, as we get older, uh, a lot of things change and again, you know, we say, okay, here's a benchmark for protein. What is it? I mean, I think the there's a problem of nutrient density for many people that are, you know, not very mobile or not active. That can be in even young age groups who sit around too much. So you can't make up, really have a good solid nutrient-based diet with uh, you know, eating only 1,200 calories. Yes, you can plan it out, but you know, you need your computer. You know, if, and then if you think of the older people like me, uh, your appetite tends to go down, but the uh, and often mobility goes down. You know, it, it's uh, for most people it goes down after about seventy-five. Where activity levels go down, and you know, we really have to, you have a choice. You either start moving, or you start eating a more nutrient-dense diet. And uh, 
then as well, when you're in that age group, we've done studies with uh, dairy products and aging. Uh, people over 65, well, I guess we were over 60 even, compared to a 20, 30 age group, they have a metabolic rigidity. They don't respond as quickly to the macronutrients and to the same extent, and they they're already tend to be somewhat insulin resistant and uh, low grade. <coughs> and they're, excuse me, becoming the, the fastest growing group. Uh, you know, a woman, I think it's something like uh, over half the women uh, from age that were 65 are still alive at 90 years of age or better. So, you know, we're living longer despite when we keep uh, worrying about our diet all the time. But uh, I think that nutrient density and, you know, accounting for that rigidity uh, is really what needs to be focused on. And it's probably a bad time for uh, older adults to start switching their diet into some kind of new new era when they're used to certain foods. There's certain things they should drop, of course, but, uh, uh, you know, they're still living with their past and it's very much harder for them to switch than probably a teenager or a 20-year-old. We have to be aware of all those things. And I think that's where the dietitians are really important and they shouldn't get on any of these fads and, you know, think very carefully about understanding uh, dietary advice. And, you know, I'm amazed in our human studies how little people seem to know or how little they can take in, you know, instead of, you know, good old days, three squares a day and, you know, a balanced plate. We, we always had that on the farm without any food guide. <laughs> Well, great. Uh, well, certainly, Harvey, I think uh, we've had a really good discussion on, on some of the factors that, uh, you know, can influence satiety and metabolic control and, and uh, in particular, how it, uh, some processing steps and specific food types and food groups can, can play a very significant role in influencing those components. So uh, is, are there some key takeaways that you'd like to, to leave with the audience uh, at this point in time? I think people should be looking at their body and taking care of it as, as well as they take care of their car, you know, uh, and that should start early. And I think uh, it really isn't, I'm just amazed at how simple it is to, you know, stay healthy to your old age, uh, you know, activity and moderation. And, you know, that's it, you know. Uh, and with food guidance, I think, you know, I almost think we're, we're with, you know, this constant bombardment and, uh, you know, healthy diets and healthy promotion just maybe makes people too anxious and too, too aware and not quite know what to do with it. And by the way, you know, if you look at the Health Canada website, it acknowledges that, uh, you know, despite all the advice that's been on the site for years and years, there's no proof that, that any of it has done any good. And uh, there's no solid evidence that the promotion of healthy diets has had an impact. And, you know, now the World Health is coming out and saying that 60% of 
the world will be obese by, I don't know, 20, 30, or 40. Uh, if you look at when we started the food guide in Canada in 42, look what's happened to obesity. And, you know, that's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, then obesity, and our, especially with children and adults, just continues to slowly creep up. So maybe we do... Uh, be cautious, you know, I think uh, one with uh, suggested didn't read diet books, you could, might die of a misprint, but, you know, specific advice, because I think most of us, I've already learned when I talk to people that we may have 36 or 38 million people in Canada, but all but one of them knows more about nutrition than I do. So, you know, we, we, I mean, it's so so valuable to us, healthy eating and a healthy lifestyle. Well, Harvey, you've, you've certainly left a, a lot of food for thought there, uh, pun intended, uh, certainly, as, we, uh, as we reflect on certain, a lot of those topics that you mentioned, particularly at the end there, could serve as future discussions and podcasts on nutrition conversations. So at this point in time, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Harvey Anderson for, uh, for his expertise and his time with us today as we explore this concept of uh, metabolic control and satiety. So thank you, Harvey. You're welcome. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Nutrition Conversations. We hope you found today's discussion informative and inspiring. If you're interested in hearing more about the latest research in nutrition and health, be sure to check out our website at cns-scn.ca-podcast for upcoming episodes. Remember, our podcasts are also available on the Spotify app, so you can easily listen to us on the go. Simply search for the Nutrition Conversations podcast on Spotify and you'll find all our episodes in one place. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode.